Hello and welcome to The Corridor here on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario and podcasting on Spotify and Apple Music. I'm Dinah Jansen and with me is CFRC Local Journalism Initiative news producer Jesse Bell. This regional news program features news from Kingston and area provided by local and regional journalists through the support of the Local Journalism Initiative and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Welcome and enjoy. We begin the program with a piece from Local Journalism Initiative reporter Christina Laurie. The Kingston Frontenac Public Library is now providing free menstrual products in all public washrooms across their branches. KFBL aims to contribute to menstrual equity by ensuring free pads and tampons are easily accessible to everyone. In their release, they also let people know that these products will be readily available in both the women's and men's washrooms, which was, quote, a deliberate choice, ensuring anyone can easily access them for personal use or to support partners, family members, and friends, end quote. Along with this step, on December 6th, they will also host a virtual session, How to Talk to Kids About Periods, in collaboration with The Period Purse, a Toronto-based charity dedicated to achieving menstrual equity. I sat down with Kristen LeMay with KFBL to chat about this project and their collaboration with The Period Purse. I was wondering if you'd like to introduce yourself and your role with the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Thank you very much. My name is Kristen LeMay, and I'm the manager of branches and collections at the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, we're mostly talking about today how KFPL has started to provide free menstrual products in all of your public washrooms across all of your branches. Uh, I was wondering to start us off if you could speak a bit to this need in Canada. Certainly. So one in five Canadians who menstruate struggle to afford menstrual products for themselves or dependents and have been forced to ration products because they can't afford more. Uh, In fact, there was a study conducted by Plan International Canada that showed that 63% of women and girls have regularly or occasionally missed an activity because of their period and concerns about not being able to access menstrual hygiene products or proper facilities. And this is something that we don't often talk about because of the perceived stigma. Yeah, absolutely. And I was wondering um, how public libraries are well positioned to address this need. Public libraries are great places to find information and connect with the community. People of all ages from different socioeconomic backgrounds come through our doors every day. For some, they may not have access to the products they need at home or at work. And if they're already coming to the library, this is a convenient place for them to access what they need. I was wondering how long this project has been in the works for KFPL. We started a pilot project at the Central Branch in December 2020. And then based on the success, we expanded this program to all 16 branches. Oh, awesome. Good stuff. Okay. And uh, I was wondering how this project was brought to fruition, like the team behind it, perhaps like where you got the funding for it. Right. So... In terms of how this project all began, during COVID, we were really taking a look at how we can best support the community. And this was something uh, that came out of that conversation. We started out by having the products behind the desk, but then we realized that it was a barrier for people because they had to come up and ask staff for the products. So then we moved them to the washrooms so that patrons could access the products independently. And we decided that this was an important initiative Uh, Menstrual products, they're a necessity, not a luxury. And this is why the initiative was expanded to all of our branches. And it seems like there is building awareness in the community that these resources are available at the library, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's great to hear. Sort of paired with this announcement, uh, 
you shared an upcoming event for KFPL. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about on December 6th, uh, how to talk to kids about periods and also speak a little bit about how the period purse got involved with this event. Right. Our children's services librarian connected with a guest speaker from the period purse when she was attending a webinar about library services for children and youth. Uh, so the upcoming event will cover information about periods, reusable period products, and how to find the words to talk about a subject that may be uncomfortable for some caregivers. 83% of young Canadian menstruators experience shame, and one in three don't feel prepared for their first period. Caregivers can help alleviate these feelings by talking about periods, and this workshop will help give caregivers the language to do so. And anyone who is interested in attending this free program can visit our website at www.kfpl.ca to learn more and to register. Once again, that was Kristen LeMay on KFPL's introduction of free menstrual products across all of their washrooms. The virtual presentation, How to Talk to Kids About Periods, will be conducted in real time using Google Meets starting at 6.30 p.m. and registration is required. You can register at calendar.kfpl.ca. Thank you, Chris. And now over to Jesse Bell, CFRC Local Journalism Initiative news producer with more in local news. Thank you, Dinah. This is Jesse Bell with a piece from Local Journalism Initiative reporter Owen Fullerton from YGK News. Kingston and the Island's MPP Ted Shu saw his bid to lead the Ontario Liberal Party in the next election come to an end last Saturday with Bonnie Crombie being selected as the leader of the provincial party. Shu submitted his leadership bid in late May and remained in the race until the first round of this weekend's voting, where he was eliminated with a 10% vote share among the four remaining candidates. Shu said he and his team didn't expect to win, but based on projections, they were a bit disappointed to not garner more support. However, the MPP said, it is what it is, and that he's focused on his work at Queen's Park alongside the new Liberal leader. Chu has said that the candidates are, for the most part, on the same page about key issues. I think over the course of the leadership race, the different candidates and their policies and agendas started to converge, Chu said. What we want to do now is rebuild the party. We agree on doing that. MPs Nate Erskine-Smith and Yasir Nakvi rounded out the four remaining options along with Chu and Crombie, with Chu standing alone as current MPPs among the candidates. He says the candidates in the party are committed to opposing Doug Ford and the Conservatives in the next election, but he's the only one of the four who can do that until 2026. Shu said that Crombie's victory wasn't a surprise. She was the perceived frontrunner throughout the campaign, and Shu says she started out with some good name recognition and a larger team behind her than other candidates that helped give her a running start. Ultimately, Crombie edged out Erskine Smith with 53.4% of ranked ballot points. Shu says the party has to put its limited resources to good use in an upcoming election, and the leader will have to work closely with the caucus while staying in touch with the people in all reaches of the province. The next provincial election is expected to take place in June 2026. And now over to Dinah Jansen, reading a piece from the Kingstonist written by local journalism initiative reporter Michelle Dory Forrestal. Thank you, Jesse. Last week, Michelle Dory Forstall reported that some local volunteers have been recognized by the province with the June Callwood Outstanding Achievement Award for Volunteerism. The award is named in honour of the late June Callwood, a renowned Canadian journalist, author, social activist and Order of Ontario appointee who founded and co-founded more than 50 Canadian social action organizations. 
The award recognizes the leadership, innovation, and contributions of individual volunteers, volunteer administrators, and volunteer organizations who have made meaningful contributions to their communities. This year, Ontario recognized 14 exceptional individuals and volunteer organizations, including the Crisis and Support Volunteers of the Sexual Assault Centre Kingston and individual volunteers Ida Gavlas of Stella on Amherst Island and Joan Hazard of Belleville. Michael Ford, Provincial Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism, extended his congratulations to the recipients, saying Ontarians are grateful for the tireless work these remarkable volunteers have done to give back and drive positive change in their communities. The Sexual Assault Centre of Kingston's volunteer program has over 100 volunteers active at any given time, according to a 2022 annual report, which outlined the organization's diverse experience, strength and skill, and that volunteers engage in crisis line work, accompaniment support, public education and outreach. During the 2021-22 fiscal year, SAC volunteers spent 12,936 hours of their time ensuring that the SAC crisis line and support program had coverage and that there was always someone there to support survivors when they would call. The SAC counts post-secondary students, working professionals, retirees and volunteers from other community agencies among its current roster. The SAC report also notes that volunteers are the reason it can offer its services to survivors and that the organization is thankful to them and their commitment to the program. According to the province, through their services in seven different regions across Ontario, SAC Kingston has supported thousands of vulnerable Ontarians since 2021. Another local recipient of the award is Amherst Island's Ida Gavlas, who claimed she was happily retired until she decided Amherst Island needed a walk-in medical clinic. According to a release from the provincial government during the COVID-19 pandemic, she helped establish a mobile flu clinic that grew into a monthly wellness clinic that played an important role in supporting the health and well-being of the community. Joan Hazard of Belleville was also recognized for her contributions. Hazard was the president of the Avaya Community Volunteers from its inception in 1988 until its closure in 2015. The group was composed of both Bell Canada and Nortel retirees as a social club, and its members and community-oriented club raised thousands of dollars across the years for charitable organizations in the Quinty area. According to the province, she had volunteered for over 50 years to support others in her community and helped provide goods to patients at Belleville General Hospital, Auxiliary, and the Bell Nortel Community Volunteers, while also creating a bursary for high school students seeking to study trades. And now back over to Jesse Bell with a story about a new draft community improvement plan for the Township of Leeds and the Thousand Islands. Thank you, Dinah. A draft CIP or community improvement plan report for the Township of Leeds and the Thousand Islands has been released for public review and input. A statutory public meeting was held on Monday in the council chambers in Lansdowne to review and receive public input with respect to the draft CIP. The presentation was delivered by Jesse McPhail with RE Public Urbanism. The township hired RE Public Urbanism and Parcel Economics in April to create a CIP for the municipality. The CIP is a first for the township and will build on existing grant programming along with seeking to encourage improvements throughout the township. A CIP is essentially an incentive package. It's a planning and economic development tool for community revitalization. In his presentation to Council, McPhail listed the goals of the CIP. They include enhancing the vitality of the township's main streets, increasing the condition and number of designated heritage properties, cultivating inviting public spaces, promoting community pride and responsibility, establishing cooperative partnerships within the community, facilitating the development of more affordable and attainable housing, ensuring fair allocation of improvement efforts and resources, 
strengthening the township's identity and branding within each unique community, encouraging the growth of business that will contribute to a diverse economy, and creating opportunities to educate, involve, and support initiatives focused on the community's natural environment. These are more tangible goals, McPhail said. These goals were really designed to help the township track progress over the next 10 years, as well as help with the review process. The township's draft CIP includes five financial incentive programs and nine municipal leadership initiatives, and they are as follows. A facade improvement program, an accessibility and code compliance program, a secondary dwelling unit support program, a building conversion and expansion program, and an agritourism program. The proposed municipal leadership initiatives are ones for the township to consider pursuing over the life of the CIP. They include adopting a land acknowledgement and communications policy, improving public parks and water access, supporting property standards management, Main Street revitalization, improving wayfinding in the township, supporting attainable and affordable housing development, assessing opportunities for unopened rights of ways, supporting environmental stewardship, and exploring opportunities for reuse or redevelopment of the Seelys Bay Fire Hall. The hope is that these incentive programs and leadership initiatives will help support community improvement projects throughout the township over the next decade. The entire township is designated as a community improvement plan area, and eligibility for grants will depend on location of property and the type of project. Township Council will have full discretion as to which incentive programs to offer or activate from year to year and which leadership initiatives to pursue. Councillor Jeff Lackey asked about the incentive programs, the applications, and how often one could apply. The implementation section of the document indicates that it's annually. However, depending on budget and allocation, there's something that can be refined through our implementation of the plan, said Marnie Venditti, the township's director of planning and development. Some public feedback regarding the proposed CIP included a push for more accessibility within the community for people with mobility needs, a suggestion for an accessibility committee, a suggestion for an increase in the financial incentive programs, and an ask for an improvement to the facade within the core settlement areas of the township. Now, Council will consider all feedback and comments received to date and decide on whether to adopt the plan as is, with revisions, or defer a decision. A Council decision is anticipated for January 2024. Over to Dinah Jansen with two reports from local journalism initiative reporter Philip Blanchet of the Morrisburg Leader. Thank you, Jesse. The miniature train at Upper Canada Village has returned to operation. The St. Lawrence Parks Commission, which owns Upper Canada Village, announced the return of the train from a nearly 18-month absence as the Alight at Night Festival opened on December 1st. The train, which derailed on July 22, 2022, was not in operation throughout the remainder of the 2022 season and the entire summer and fall 2023 seasons. SLPC spokesperson Katie Forrester told the Morrisburg leader that final testing was completed last week and the miniature train has been given the green light to operate at a light at night. No details were released on what repairs were made or how the work was completed to return the train to service. In August, the leader reported that two tenders issued by the Crown agency related to the train line, one for repairs, the other for ongoing maintenance of the line, were unanswered and the ride was closed indefinitely. The SLPC's three-year business plan allocated $200,000 for miniature train equipment and $250,000 for track repair. The amusement ride connecting Upper Canada Village to Chrysler Beach and Chrysler Park Marina needed track work. Heat-related expansion kinks in the steel rails were found to be the cause of the 2022 ride derailment. Asked when the repairs were made or if the train was operating only to Chrysler Beach or to Chrysler Marina during a light at night, Forrester responded that no changes were made since the last time the SLPC provided information. 
The Light at Night event at the Village opened December 1st with more than one million lead lights decorating the buildings of the 1860s Village. This is the 23rd season for the award-winning winter event. A Light at Night runs Thursday to Sunday evenings until December 17th and is open nightly afterwards until January 7th, 2024, excluding December 24th and 25th. Tickets for the event are available online only via the Upper Canada Village website, uppercanadavillage.com. In other Morrisburg area news, the annual Pumpkin Inferno event at Upper Canada Village saw fewer people through the ticket gate in 2023. The 12th annual running of this popular fall tourist event had an attendance of 35,000 people. That is an 18.6% decrease or 8,000 fewer people than there were in 2021, despite adding an additional night to the event schedule in 2023. The SLPC added Thanksgiving Monday, October 9th to the month-long schedule. Upper Canada Village Operator St. Lawrence Parks Commission did not publicly release its 2022 attendance figures. This year it released a combined attendance figure for its three fall-themed events, Fort Fright at Fort Henry in Kingston, Pumpkin Inferno at the former Kingston Penitentiary, and Pumpkin Inferno at Upper Canada Village. The combined attendance of the three events was stated by the SLPC as about 75,000 people. The positive impact of these three fall events is estimated at nearly $9 million, according to the Tourism Regional Economic Impact Model, said SLPC spokesperson Katie Forrester in a release. Upon follow-up by the Morrisburg leader, Forrester released a separate figure for Pumpkin Inferno at Upper Canada Village as 35,000 people and the Tourism Regional Economic Impact Model Economic Impact as just over $5 million. Event attendance peaked in 2017 with nearly 75,000 people visiting Upper Canada Village. At that time, tickets were sold at the village box office, and this prompted vehicle lineups several kilometres long to get into parking lots. A scheduled entry system and online-only ticket purchases eliminated the traffic chaos on neighbouring roads. Pumpkin Inferno is a must-see attraction bringing guests from all across eastern Ontario and western Quebec regions, says Stormont Dundas South Glengarry Member of Provincial Parliament Nolan Quinn. They added that the parks of the St. Lawrence have done a tremendous job in developing and growing the exhibits, including new pumpkin carvings every season. SLPC Chair Bob Runciman said he was pleased to have contributed towards the Eastern Ontario economy in a time of year that is normally slow. By offering guests different experience options as well as their favourite annual fall tradition in two distinct locations, the SLPC was able to appeal to the market and make these experiences accessible to them, he said in a release. These kinds of guest-focused program enhancements are how we will continue to drive economic prosperity in the region while also providing memorable cultural and recreational experiences for visitors, he added. Pumpkin Inferno this year featured over 7,000 carved foam-lighted pumpkin sculptures and was open on select days from September 29th to October 29th. And now moving over to more in regional news. Up next, we have a report from local journalism initiative reporter Ted Evans from CJAI Amherst Island Radio on service award recognition in the county of Lennox and Addington. Hi, I'm Ted Evans, local journalism initiative reporter and news director at CJAI Amherst Island Radio, 101.3 FM in Stella, Ontario. Coming up are some of the top news stories from Loyalist Township. You can hear Amherst Island Radio's news program, North Shore News, on 101.3 Amherst Island Radio or online at cjai.ca. For showtimes throughout the week, check the schedule on our website at cjai.ca. 
Lenox and Addington County will be presenting 45 members of staff with service awards at a council meeting next week. Service awards are presented to staff after every five years of service completed. The meeting will also include voting for a new warden and deputy warden. A reception will follow the conclusion of the meeting. The list of employees reaching service milestones this year are as follows. For five years of service, Janice Barker, Kevin Beach, David Biscaro, Matthew Bulkowitz, Daniel Como, Cody Gorman, Marilyn Horvath, Jeffrey Hull, Kevin Michaud, Patty Moss, Matthew Mulder, Robin Ouellette, Manasseh Reddy, Kirsten Richmond, Zoe Tremblay, Anthony Wesley James, Michael Wilson, and Crystal Woodall. For 10 years of service, Catherine Coles, Carol Corcoran, Sharon Thompson, and Crystal Yeomans. For 15 years of service, Stacey Anderson, Julie Butcher, Shannon Cole, Yorgos Janakouris, Scott Howes, Benjamin Howling, Jennifer Templar, Stacey Thompson, and Shirley Trace. For 20 years of service, Nicole Belknap, Jennifer Carefoot, Terry Hanna, Joanne Hemmelman, Karen Lyons, George Mapp, Paul Osborne, Patrick Ratchford, and Darlene Turnbull. There's Brenda Dupre receiving an award for 25 years of service. For 30 years of service, Stacy Milligan and Helen Waite. And for 35 years of service, Diane Ford and Angela Montgomery. For CJAI and the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Ted Evans. And now over to Local Journalism Initiative reporter Jeff Gard from CFWN Coburg for a story about increased funding for a hospice care facility. Four new beds will be added to Ed's House Northumberland Hospice Care Centre in Coburg. Announced this morning at the Columbus Community Centre, the Ontario government is investing $283,800 for the six current beds at Community Care Northumberland's Ed's House and an additional $609,200 in operational funding for the four new beds. It's part of a $147.4 million investment from the government over three years for palliative care facilities. Ed's House provides end-of-life care at no cost to patients. Community Care Northumberland CEO Trish Baird said plans were in the works for 10 beds when the facility was constructed. It was originally going to be six beds and one of our donors said, you know, why don't you think about expanding so that we can, and, and you know, agreed to help put in some additional funding if we could do that roughed in 10 beds. So having them roughed in, they still need work to be done, so none of the furnitures or fixtures, you know, the uh, no tiling and all that, but they're there, so it'll be a lot less disruption uh, for the people that are. And 10 bed is a, is kind of that efficient number of beds for hospices. The staffing is pretty similar. We will add a personal support worker, so it's great with the, you know, it's a good being able to expand to the 10 beds. It's the costs kind of are not quite as great as the six, so... We do have a waiting list. We have been tracking that. So we have people that could take advantage of those beds. There's people in the hospital that could be taking advantage of those beds so we can free up some of those. Northumberland Peterborough South MPP David Pacini said his government recognizes the importance of Ed's House to this community. Stories matter in our community. We heard from the families, compassionate end-of-life care, giving dignity, grief counseling, support. That's what this is about, really supporting people living their last few hours with care. Reporting for Northumberland 89.7 FM, I'm Jeff Gard. Thanks so much. And now here is Local Journalism Initiative reporter Brenda Little from CJPE-FM in Picton with a report on budget deliberations for Prince Edward County at Town Council. 
Hi, I'm Craig Foster, local journalism initiative reporter and news director at CJPE 99.3 County FM in beautiful Prince Edward County. Coming are some of the top stories from PEC. You can hear County FM news five days a week, six times a day on 99.3 County FM, Voice of the County, or stream us at 99.3countyfm.ca. The councillors of Prince Edward County are in the midst of the 2024 budget deliberations, and it's a slow go with tough decisions facing them. The proposed 12.7% tax increase does not sit well with any of the councillors and taxpayers. However, the county is faced with numerous big-ticket items to finance. Big bucks are needed to help staff grapple with supplying water to residents given the aged infrastructure and growth in the area. Wastewater is another issue facing that department, and then there's the problem of roads. Many of the roads in Prince Edward County are in need of repair and prioritizing is a problem. The rehabilitation of Highway 49, which connects the east side of the county to the 401, is another big ticket item and without government aid, piecemeal repair is the only way forward. The budget was to finish by December 8th, however December 12th is more likely given there are so many difficult decisions to be made. For the Local Journalism Initiative, I'm Brenda Little. Thanks so much, Brenda. And now over to Jesse Bell with the CFRC Environment Canada Weather Report. Thank you, Dinah. This is Jesse Bell with your Environment Canada Weather Report for the Kingston region. Thursday, December 14th, we saw a mix of sun and cloud, temperatures around the 3 degrees Celsius mark. As we move towards the weekend, we're going to see some warmer weather. Friday, December 15th, projected to be 8 degrees and sunny here in the city of Kingston, only dropping down to about 2 degrees overnight. As we move into Saturday, the sun is gone, replaced with some gray clouds, but no precipitation, and it's still going to be fairly warm at 7 degrees Celsius. Sunday, those clouds will stick around, but they do have about a 30% chance for precipitation, but at 4 degrees, it means rain, not snow. And then as we move towards the start of next week, Monday, December 18th, mix of sun and clouds, about 3 degrees Celsius. Tuesday, December 19th, about 2 degrees Celsius, that same mix of sun and cloud. This concludes your Environment Canada weather report for the Kingston area. And now over to Mia Letnin with your community events and concert calendar for the Kingston region for December 14th to December 19th. Catch the Limestone City Jazz Collective on December 14th with no cover at Blue Martini starting at 7 p.m. Drag Bingo, the free bi-monthly event hosted by Rowena Way with prizes, drinks, and fun times. Thursday, December 14th at Daft Brewing, 7 p.m. until 11 p.m. for free. Poplar, the gender-bending indie band from Kingston, Ontario, will be playing Thursday, December 14th at Hotel Wolf Island from 7 until 10 p.m. for free. Grand On Stage presents Holly Cole, A Swinging Christmas. Holly will be playing jazz and blues-inspired interpretations of Christmas classics Thursday, December 14th at the Kingston Grand Theatre beginning at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available now for $44 to $50. Happy Hour TGIF, great tunes from the 70s onward, Friday, December 15th at the Club RCHA from 4.30 until 6.30 p.m. for free. Also at the Club RCHA December 15th, The Gertrudes, a unique experimental focus-stra from 8 p.m. until 11 p.m. for $15 at the door. Elvis, a Christmas special featuring Pete Paquette and the Rockin' Royals and the Tonettes, Friday, December 15th at the Kingston Grand Theatre. It will start at 7 p.m. and tickets are available now for $53. Catch bands like Pacific, Locket, Fifth, 
Monarch, and Listen Up Kid from Toronto, Ontario, Friday, December 15th at The Mansion, starting at 9 p.m. Doors are at 8 and tickets are $20. Virtue and the Cats, a tribute to Winnipeg, featuring Manitoba band The Weaker Thans, will be playing a free show at The Toucan, Friday, December 15th, starting at 10.30 p.m. On December 16th, catch Kingston band Goldwig at Blue Martini, starting at 9 p.m. for free. Dead Root Revival will be playing a free show at the Club RCHA Saturday, December 16th from 8 p.m. until 11 p.m. The Inner Harbor Trio, Natalie Cran, David Becksteed, and Helena Hannibal will be playing live with other jazz cats Saturday, December 16th at Hotel Wolf Island from 6 until 9 p.m. for free. Catch the Good Lovelies on their Christmas tour 2023, Saturday, December 16th at the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts. The show is all ages from 8 p.m. until 10 p.m. with doors at 7. Tickets are available now for $40 to $50. Warm Clothes Roundup for Kingston Street Mission, a benefit show supporting Kingston Street Mission with artists Clem Chesterfield and the Lazy Boy Recliners, the Millwrights, Lisa Lehman, Tom Savage, John McClurg, Paula Wood, and Laser Bear, Sunday, December 17th at the mansion from 2 p.m. until 5 p.m. with entrance by donation. Eric Turnbull, who placed first at the Canadian Fingerstyle Guitar Competition in 2005, will be playing Sunday, December 17th at Spearhead Brewery from 2 until 5 p.m. for free. December 19th, catch some great music for a great cause with a special fundraiser for Joe's Mill with Jan's Jam for Joe at the Club RCHA from 4 p.m. until 7 p.m. and entrance by donation. A Lunch at Allen's Christmas featuring Murray McLaughlin, Cindy Church, Mark Jordan, and Ian Thomas Tuesday, December 19th at the Kingston Grand Theatre. The show is all ages and will start at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available now for $65. Thank you for tuning into The Corridor here on CFRC 101.9 FM and podcasting on Spotify and Apple Music through the support of the Local Journalism Initiative and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, situated on the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of Smith Engineering.